Hear then the word of the Lord as we read and continue thinking through the story of the life of Jesus the Messiah. Hear the word of the Lord. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things, they said? What is this wisdom given to him, and how are these miracles performed by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. Then Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his household. He was not able to do any miracles there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Now he was going around the villages in a circuit teaching. Verse 7. He summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He instructed them to take nothing for the road except a walking stick, no bread, no traveling bag, no money in their belts. They were to wear sandals, but not put on an extra shirt. Then he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. If any place does not welcome you and people refuse to listen to you when you leave there shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them so they went out and preached that the people should repent and they were driving out many demons anointing many sick people with olive oil and healing them this is the word of the lord father we do pray again as we think about your word We pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things here in your word. Lord, we just sang and believe that we stand in Christ alone. We know that apart from him, you don't hear our prayers or we don't deserve for you to hear our prayers. We know that we don't deserve our eyes to be open and our ears to be open and our hearts to be softened and our feet to be moved to action. We don't deserve the life and light you give us. And yet... Because you have united us to Jesus, your son, because you've united us to Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, we can stand in him with no fear in life, no guilt in life, no fear in death, because we have the power of Christ in us by your grace and for your glory. And so, Father, now, as you have reminded us that we can do nothing apart from your son, we're asking now that we would abide in Jesus and that his words would abide in us so that we might bear fruit this morning. For apart from him, the preaching and the hearing and the thinking of your word would be worthless and empty. So, Father, because your Holy Spirit lives in us now, we ask that he would move through the meditation on your word. And that you'd give us discernment to see the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, here in this passage, like much of the Bible, Jesus forces us to decide whether we will reject him or receive him. Everyone in this room, everyone in the city of Bellflower, everyone in Los Angeles County, everyone in our country and in our world either will receive or reject God. They will either receive or they will reject Jesus. Those who receive him must risk ridicule and opposition in preaching Christ and repentance. So if you say, well, I don't want to reject him, I want to receive him. Well, if you want to receive Jesus... If you want to follow Jesus, then that includes you risking ridicule and opposition for following Jesus and preaching Jesus and particularly preaching repentance. That is not popular in our day. That has never been popular in any day to preach repentance where it really sticks at the heart of where people are struggling with sin and drawn towards sin. And so this is not unique to the Bible. You know, Jesus says, if they're not against, if they're not for us, then they're against us. He who's not for me is against me, and he who's not against me is for me. And so we know that you either trust in Jesus or you don't trust in Jesus. And so there's two main points to get at, to think about this, this decision of whether you're going to trust Jesus or not. The two points are these. In verses 1 through 6, we're going to see God telling us 
Do not reject Jesus as offensive in your unbelief. That's the first thing God is going to tell us in the first six verses. Don't reject Jesus as offensive to you in your unbelief. A lot of people find Jesus offensive. Even Christians can find Jesus offensive and a stumbling block. And so that's the first thing is don't reject Jesus as offensive. And the second thing is, is to trust Jesus in risky gospel ministry. So if you're going to not reject Jesus but receive him and believe in him, then you need to trust him in the risky gospel ministry that he's called you to. Okay, And it is risky if you, if you follow and, and see what this text is saying about how we are to live. So let's look at these one at a time. Let's go to the first six verses. Don't reject Jesus as offensive in your unbelief. Look at verse 1 again. You see Jesus here. It says he went away from there. From where? Remember he just healed a, a sick woman who had a blood hemorrhage for 12 years. And then he raised a woman, a little girl, a 12-year-old girl from the dead. You remember that story last week? That Jesus did that. And so he goes on from that place in Galilee and he goes to his hometown. Now his hometown's not mentioned here, but you know his hometown. What is his hometown that he grew up in? Nazareth, right? Jesus grew up in Nazareth. That was his hometown. That's where he wasn't born there. He was born in Bethlehem, but his parents were from Nazareth. And after he was born and they went to Egypt, he went back to Nazareth. And that's where he was raised. That's where he went to school. That's where he grew up with friends. That's where he played outside. That's where he learned how to make things as a carpenter. That's where he he did his carpentry work for the first 30 plus years of his life. This hometown is where he had all of his childhood friends. It was a small town, maybe around 500 people. And you can imagine in a church of 500 people, eventually if you live there for your whole life, everyone gets to know everyone, right? And everyone gets to know everyone's business. So they all knew about uh, Joseph and Mary. They knew about Joseph and Mary's engagement. They knew about you know Joseph and Mary's pregnancies and the, the children. And, and so Jesus grew up here. Maybe his first crush was there. Jesus never married anyone. You know, we don't have any reason to think he even dated. I'm not saying he did, but it does say that, you know, Jesus was tempted in all ways like us. So certainly all this, all the temptations of sin that were in that day came across Jesus' way and he grew up there. People knew him. People saw him. People went to synagogue with him. And this was his hometown. But now as he comes back home, he's a big deal, right? I mean, he's sort of a big deal. He's raised two people from the dead. He's done many miracles. He's cast out demons. He's healed the sick. He's gone around Galilee. There's quite a buzz around Galilee that Jesus is sort of the celebrity in town or in the, in the area. He's the most popular of all the popular rabbis in the time. And he's from their hometown. And he's coming home for a visit, a homecoming of sorts. And so he comes home. But he doesn't come home alone in verse 1. He comes home with his disciples who followed him. His 12 disciples, presumably. And other followers as well. And so verse 2, when the Sabbath came, so he's probably been in town for a few days. When the Sabbath came, which is a Saturday, the seventh day, he, um, he began to teach in the synagogue. And that's what you do in a, in a, in a synagogue, right? You, you gather together to have a synagogue. All you need is 10 Jewish men. You gather in a synagogue, you begin to open the scriptures, you go to the scripture reading for that Sunday, you read the passage, you explain the passage, you teach the passage, you apply the passage to the people. Nothing new there. You got visiting rabbis all the time, except that this is Jesus, the hometown friend who has now gone popular rabbi. And so in verse 2, he begins, he begins to teach in the synagogue. Nothing abnormal there. Um, abnormal there. And in verse 2, it says, and many who heard him were what? What was the reaction? They were what? Astonished in verse 2. They were amazed. And they, they started thinking questions in their mind as he's beginning to teach. They start to think things like, in verse 2, where it says, Where did this man get these things? They said, What is this wisdom given to him? And how are these miracles performed by his hand? So they start to wonder about the source of his ability. It's clear he has wisdom, right? They see his wisdom. They're not saying, Does this man have wisdom? They said, Where does his wisdom what? come from so they want to know the source of it now they want to know because they saw him for his first 30 plus years of life we went to synagogue with him he was a member in our church he used to sit in the pews and now all of a sudden he didn't go to seminary he didn't at least here if you were a popular rabbi and a very insightful teacher you trained under other teachers you found a rabbi 
You followed him, you learned from him, you sat under his feet for several years, and everyone in your town would have known that you were sitting under him, and then you teach. And then everyone knows where your insight comes from. Everyone knows where your wisdom comes from, from your training, right? From your teacher. But we know this man. He didn't have a teacher. He didn't have a rabbi he was following around. Clearly there's wisdom. Where is this coming from? He didn't go through the normal means of the day. And not only where is this, te- this teaching coming from, what is this wisdom given to him? Now, why was Jesus teaching wisely? Do you remember how Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5 and, and even Mark chapter 1? You know, Jesus' teaching was astonishing because he didn't teach like the rabbis did. He would say things like, you have heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you, everyone who even hates someone in their heart is guilty of murder already. And then he would say, you have heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, if you even look at a woman with lustful intention in your heart, you've already committed adultery in your heart. It's better to pluck the eye out of your, you know, take the eye out of your eye socket or cut off your hand than continue in that sin. He talks about taking oaths, you know, and Jesus wasn't quoting other rabbis. He wasn't even quoting scripture. Well, he was quoting scripture and saying, you heard it said, don't murder. That's what the scripture says. And then he would say, but I say to you, that sounds kind of audacious, right? Imagine if I came up here and I brought the Bible, I read and say, here's what the Bible says, but this is what PJ says. You'd throw me out of here. I hope you would throw me out of here. Or at least call for a quick members meeting, right? <laughs> Business meeting. We need to discuss this right away. Because you don't have, we, we as humans, we don't have authority to just say, here's what the Bible says, I'm going to put it aside, and this is what I tell you. That's audacious. And yet, everything he was saying seemed right in line. You know, I said, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Yeah, yeah, adultery is bad. But I say to you, don't even look at a woman with lustful intent in your heart. And all of a sudden, instead of getting mad at his authority, you feel convicted. You're like, oh, he got me, right? And then you heard it said, don't murder off. As I've lived 35 years, I haven't murdered anyone. And then he says, but if you hated someone, you're guilty of murder. And even though you want to get mad at him, you know he's right. And you know you're guilty. So the wisdom that he taught with, And the authority that he taught with was unlike other teachers. It was amazing. And they didn't know where it came from. Not only that, in verse 3 or verse 2, they're not only asking about his teaching and his wisdom, they're also asking, where does he get the power to perform miracles? He's done miracles. Now, they're saying, you know, this guy made my chair. (laughs) He made my table, my sturdy table in my house. His dad and him worked on, you know, the the front door of of our adobe home. I know how he gets the skills to do that. Where does he get the skill to cast out demons and heal the sick and raise the dead? Where does he get this power? Now this, by the way, just um, bursts the... Have you heard of the Gnostic Gospels? I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but there's these other Gospels like the Gospel of Judas and the Gospel of Thomas and all these fake Gospels out there that were not written by those people, but under those names, you know, Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code made them popular again. Anyways, one of the big errors in those books is that Jesus was committed, was doing miracles when he was a child. You know, like he'd get dirt together and he'd, he'd make a clay thing and he'd blow on it and then it'd become birds. And the kids would be like, oh, wow, you know, like magic tricks almost. But, it, but from this text, it's clear that they don't know where his power came from. If he was doing miracles growing up, they would have said, oh, yeah, I remember when he used to do those tricks when we were little kids. They're not saying that. Why are they not saying that? Because he didn't do that when he was a little kid. He was a normal person just like any other person in the Nazareth community. And so verse 3, as they continue, it says, why, why else are they surprised? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us too? I mean, we've married, his sisters have married other people. We know all of his brothers. How can this guy have this wisdom and this teaching and this power for miracles? And so what does it say at the end of verse 3? So they were what? Offended by him or stumbled by him. That's not the only reaction to Jesus. What else could they have been? They could have been happy. They could have been amazed and started believing in him, right? They could have been interested in him, but they weren't interested in him. They did want to know the source, but they weren't interested because they wanted him. They were offended at him. They were mad at him. They were scandalized by him. The word there actually is the word for scandalize, the transliteration of it in our world. You know, what what happens when you get a scandal? Scandal is big, it's public, it's offensive. It's repudiating and it it disgusts you, right? It makes you repel against those people. So in other words, Jesus to them was a scandal. 
Because all of his power, where's he getting it from? Remember the Pharisees' answer to that question? Where's he getting his power from? From who? From the devil, right? So they're scandalized by him. Maybe, I'm not saying they believe it's coming from the devil, but they clearly knew his background. They're saying, how dare this guy think he is who he thinks he is and have the authority and tell us to believe in him? They were scandalized by him. Jesus offended them, and he was rejected among his own hometown. Look at verse 4. It says, Then Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his household. So in other words, a prophet gets honor everywhere except where? Back home, in his hometown. You're just Jesus to us. You're just Jesus. So they were offended by him. They were scandalized by him. And are people scandalized by Jesus today? Are people offended by Jesus today? Yes. Some of you here, some in our culture, some of you here may reject the Bible. Some of you may reject Jesus. Maybe you reject Christianity because you don't agree with all of it and you don't like everything in the Bible. Maybe it's the Bible saying that, just to use you know current cultural discussion, maybe it's the Bible saying that homosexual activity is sexually immoral and sinful. Maybe you don't like that. And you're offended by Jesus in saying that, or the Bible saying that. Or maybe you're offended that the Bible says that Jesus is the only way to heaven, or that God must punish sin in hell, or that His commands and rules are, are, are oblig- obligatory on you, that you have to do them. That God has commands and demands, and you are accountable for obeying or disobeying them. Maybe you don't like that. You know, Jesus offends everyone. He offends Westerners like us. You know what Westerners love about the Bible? In other, well, what I want to say here is the Bible and Jesus have some aspects to it that people like. And they also have other aspects that people hate. And it just depends on your preferences and your culture. So let me give you an example. Here in the West, here in the West, people love God's grace and love, right? Love everyone. Grace to everyone. Grace is greater than sin. Forgiveness. Everyone in the West loves that. You know what they don't like? Exclusivity. That he's the only way and authority. That everything he says is demanded for people to obey. So here in the Western world, we like his love and grace and forgiveness. We don't like his exclusivity. And we don't like his authority. But what if you grew up in the Middle East? What if you grew up in a Muslim country? Would they like authority? Do they like authority there? Yes. Is it, is it scandalous to them that, that, that God only has one way? No. It's clear to them, right? Middle Eastern Muslims, if you grew up in that culture, it's clear that God... Now, they have a different way to God. We, we, we disagree with them. We say they're wrong and they say we're wrong. But to say that there's only one way to God is not scandalous in the Middle East. You know what's scandalous in the Middle East? God's mercy. God's love. God's forgiveness. God's sacrificing himself for others. That's scandalous in the Middle East. So it just depends where you grew up, right? Basically... It depends what what your preferences are. But you know what? Everyone is offended by Jesus somewhere. Every culture. The Bible offends every culture. The Bible offends every society at some point and agrees with society at other points. And so maybe that's why you don't like the Bible. Maybe that's why you don't like Jesus. Because he has some demands that you just don't like. But you know what? Isn't this what it takes to have a relationship with God? Some of you are familiar with, I, I, I've heard this analogy many times that I had to look it up last night just to know the story. Some of you are familiar with the story of the Stepford Wives. Now, whether you're familiar with that story or not, it's like having a relationship with your spouse, but she, she's a robot. And so she just basically does everything you want her to do. Is that a relationship? No. Is having a relationship with a robot that never can disagree with you, is that a real relationship in this world? Absolutely not. Now, sometimes I do wish my wife would agree with me, right? And sometimes she wishes I'd agree with her. But the the challenge of disagreements and the challenge of getting to know someone who is not you is a blessing, right? That's a real relationship. That's a real friendship. In other words, if you're going to have a real relationship with God, you have to expect that God won't agree with you on everything. And if God agrees with you on everything you think, you have to ask yourself a question. Are you really talking about the God of the Bible? Or are you talking about a robot of your own imagination? If you want a relationship with God, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you have to understand this, that God will not be put into your box. He defines his box in his word. 
And some of that offends us. Some of that is offensive. That's why Jesus said, by the way, in, in Matthew chapter 11, you don't have to turn there, but Matthew eleven six. you know what Jesus said? Even John the Baptist was offended by Jesus. And we'll talk about John the Baptist in a second here, or next week as we go on here. But even John the Baptist was offended by Jesus. He was in jail, and he sent some messengers to Jesus and says, Hey, why am I still in jail? Aren't you the king? Aren't you supposed to be ruling over Israel? Why am I in jail? And you know what Jesus says? Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. It's a rebuke to John, right? John's offended by him, that he's still in jail. And you know what Jesus says? Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And then he goes on to commend John. So he's not completely critiquing John. But at that point, he's, he's rebuking John. That's a critique towards John. You are blessed when you're not offended by Jesus. You know what that means? That when Jesus offends you, instead of getting mad at Jesus or getting mad at the Bible, we kind of sl- slow down first and say, okay, I'm offended. I'm offended by you, Jesus. I'm offended by the Bible. But before I get mad, let me trust that you're wise and good. And let me see if this offense is actually something I shouldn't be offended by. God, change my heart as I'm being offended by you. Because blessed is the one who's not offended by you. So you see here that Jesus' hometown family and friends were offended by him. And so they dishonored him, it says in verse 4. They didn't give him any honor. And John 5, 23 says, if you don't honor the son, you don't honor the father. So what does Jesus do in response in verse 5? It says he was not able to do any miracles there, except what did he do? He laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. I I like how Mark says that so um, by-the-way-ish. That's almost like not a big deal. He couldn't do any miracles there except he laid his hands on and healed a few people. (laughs) That's a big deal, right? I mean, especially in our culture, like, yeah, no big deal. He just put his hands on, you know, 20 people, just healed them real fast. No big deal. But that's kind of how Mark talks, you know, that he couldn't do, maybe he couldn't do more than what he should have done and would have done. He did less, but he did put his hands and heal other people. Now imagine this. He's in Nazareth. They don't believe him. They reject him. They're offended by him. They're not honoring him. And yet he's healing people in front of them. What do we call that? Grace. We call that grace. What's the grace there? He's not healing all of them. What's the grace there? The grace is that if you don't believe in him and you've rejected him and you're standing there and you're seeing him heal another person, you know what God is telling you? That Jesus is the real deal. That Jesus is a prophet. That Jesus is worth believing in. That you should, re- you should stop rejecting him and receive him. That's what the healing is telling them. And yet still, what do they, what do, they do in verse 6? They still amaze Jesus because they what? They did not believe. Verse 6. Wow, after amazing teaching, after amazing wisdom, after many works that they've heard in his reputation, even after him healing people in front of them, they still do not believe. The scandal is too great. The offense cuts too deep. Their pride they can't let go of. And therefore, they reject Jesus in their stubborn unbelief. Now, you will either reject Jesus yourself or you will receive him. You will do one of the two, just as everyone here in Nazareth did one of the two. But we, as, as you think about your response to Jesus, I want you to think about verse 5 again. Look at verse 5. What does it say in verse 5, the first sentence there? He was not able to what? To do any miracles. He was not able to do any miracles. He, he couldn't do any miracles. Now you ask the question, um, Jesus was unable? Can't God do all things? Is there anything impossible for God? But it says here he's not able. He could not do miracles here. Why not? Anyone want to guess? From verse 6? Their unbelief, right? Grace comes through what? Grace, or, for by grace you are saved through faith. Grace comes through faith. Faith comes from hearing. I heard some of you say that, but yeah. Grace comes through faith. And so there's some grace that you, you cut off grace from your life when you disbelieve in God. Grace flows through the channel of faith. And faith is not flowing here. Or the faith channel is closed up, so there's no grace to flow. So Jesus is... But it, the, the language here is strong. He was unable. That sounds just really strong, right? He was unable. Now, does that mean he couldn't do it? No, it doesn't mean it that way. It means that he can't do it in a way that would go against his messianic mission of following God, leading him. In other words, Jesus doesn't want to turn into a sideshow where he just does a bunch of miracles to impress people. He's not about impressing people with the sideshow miracles. 
He's about saving people from their sins by grace through faith, through belief. And they did not believe. Therefore, he will not do miracles here. He cannot do miracles here. Now we say cannot. Still struggling with that word a little bit. Cannot do miracles. Remember Satan in the, in the wilderness with Jesus? What was his first temptation? If you are the son of God, turn these stones to what? Bread. Now, question. Can Jesus turn the stones into bread? Yes or no? Yes. Now let me ask the question again. Could Jesus in that moment turn the stones into bread? If he's going to obey God. Could he? No. In one sense, he can't. Not because he's not able to, but because he's not willing to. It would go against his messianic mission. It would give in to the temptation of Satan. It would disobey God and honor Satan, and Jesus would fail in his mission, right? So he cannot turn the stones into bread. Not because he's unable in terms of ability, but he's unable in terms of his willingness and in terms of his mission. Does that make sense? So here, why can't he heal people here? Why can't he do more miracles here? Not because he's unable... By itself, but because of his messianic mission, and he doesn't want to become a sideshow. And it was also because of their unbelief. It was impossible for Jesus to do miracles there because of their unbelief. But answer this question out loud. Are all things possible with God? Okay, we'll turn to Mark 14. Turn to Mark 14. You're right. You're right. All things are possible for God. Turn to Mark 14. Same, same book. Just go a few pages to the right. Mark 14.35. This is Jesus praying the night before he's about to die. This is Thursday night. And it says, he went a little farther. He fell to the ground. Jesus fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were what? That if it were what? Possible, the hour might pass from him. I want you to hear that word possible. Look at verse 36. And he said, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father, all things are what? All things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, not what I will, but what you will. So what does he start the prayer with? All things are possible for you. So it's possible for you to take this cup away from me, right, Father? This is the other time in the Bible where it was not possible for God to do a miracle. He couldn't do a miracle in healing people because of their rejection. And now here, here he cannot do a miracle of taking the cup away from Jesus. Jesus would be judged. He would be cursed on the cross. And God was unable to take this cup from him. He had to be rejected for the unbelief of the world. For the scandal of the world. For the rejection of the world. As we as sinners in this world have rejected God, God rejects Jesus on the cross and he is unable to let the cup pass from him. So that God could give us the cup of mercy, and let the cup of wrath pass from us. Praise the Lord that God was unable to let the cup pass from Jesus. Praise the Lord that God is unable to do a miracle here of delivering Jesus from the cross so that he can deliver you and I from our sins. What a blessing. What a savior. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, through his drinking of the cup of wrath, we are saved. If you're not a Christian here this morning, you need to understand that you have enough knowledge about God and about yourself and about Jesus that you ought to trust him right now. You need to turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. Jesus died for sinners. He rose from the dead. God did not deliver him from the cup so that you can be saved. If you will not give your life to Jesus Christ today, here's what I want you to do. I want you to at least think about two things. One, think about the reason you won't give your life to Jesus. Is it because you don't understand the gospel? Is it because the cost is too high and you don't want to give up something in your life? Is it because it doesn't cohere with other thoughts in your mind like evolution or something? Figure out why you don't want to give your life to Jesus today. And at least ask the questions of Christians why you think you should, why we think you should, even with your objections. Secondly, I want you to know this as a non-Christian here this morning. If you're not a Christian, you're not sure you're a Christian. You don't know when you'll have another opportunity to believe in Jesus. You can die today. You can die today. And if you die rejecting Jesus, that will be on your account. Because God is calling you even this morning to trust in Jesus and turn from your sins. Call on him to save you. If you're a Christian here, 
we have a warning and an encouragement here in this passage. Here's the warning. The warning is this to Christians. We sometimes reject Jesus in the way we reject his reproof and correction. Because as Christians, sometimes we say this phrase. And I want you, every time you say this phrase, to look in the mirror and pause before you keep saying it. I already know that. You ever used that phrase before? Someone corrects you of something in the Bible and you say, oh, I already know that. As if that means you don't have to listen to the Bible verse anymore. Right? As if our pride puffs us up, oh, I already know that. Therefore, your rebuke or your correction doesn't count. No. We got to be careful. When we say, I already know that, so therefore you can't correct me, what we're doing is we're assuming we have a relationship with God that we're not having in that moment or that we're obeying him when we're not. You have to see that even Christians can reject Jesus, not completely reject Jesus, but in, in small ways. We can reject Jesus in our own lives. We can be scandalized by Jesus in our own lives where we reject certain commands of him. We say, yeah, I know the Bible says I should do that, but, but, and you get there and you've slowly, at least partially rejected Jesus in your life. And God is telling you, don't reject him. Don't reject Jesus in your unbelief. I also want to encourage you, Christians. We have, think about this. I want you to look around. You're not weird, okay? Now, in our culture, you might feel weird, especially after the the recent events this past week in um, the Supreme Court ruling. You might feel that you're in the minority, and you are in the minority in the country in some of our beliefs. But I want you to look around and, and, and be encouraged by this. You're sitting in a room with other Christians who have trusted Jesus without knowing all the answers as to why things happen or what will happen. Just look around. You're here with a bunch of people who, who God hasn't given all the answers to, and yet they have given their life to trusting Jesus. You're not alone. Praise God that you have faith in Jesus without God giving you all the answers. You know what we call that? Faith, right? He's given us enough of his truth that we can believe him even when he doesn't give us all the answers. We're not scandalized by him not giving us all the answers. We just say, Lord, I don't understand why I'm going through this. I don't understand why we're going through this, but I trust you. Don't you feel that way as a Christian? Praise God that you, brother, and you, sister, have not rejected Jesus. But even when he hasn't given you the answers, you still trust him. That is sweet grace. And that is a blessing that we're not the only ones, but we're in a church full of people who believe in Jesus. And as a church family, what should we do? We need to keep helping each other trust in Jesus and not reject him. Okay, that's the first thing, is don't reject Jesus in your unbelief. Secondly, look at verses 6 through 13. Back to Mark chapter 6, verses 6 through 13. So what does Jesus do next? He's rejected in his hometown, so now we need to trust Jesus in risky gospel ministry. What is this risky gospel ministry? Verse 6, the second part of verse 6 says, Now Jesus was going around the villages in a circuit. And what was he doing as he's going around? He's doing what? Teaching. Jesus is teaching. He's teaching, teaching, teaching. What is the main ministry of Jesus in this phase of his ministry before he goes to die on the cross? It's to teach publicly the truth. Remember what it says in Mark 1.15? Or Mark 1.14, Jesus goes around and he's preaching and teaching and he says, The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's what he's teaching. The kingdom has come. The time is fulfilled. The Old Testament promises are coming to light right now in my coming. I, the king, am here. The kingdom is here. Now is the time to turn from your sins and believe in the good news. He's going around city to city, town to town, teaching and teaching and teaching and teaching. Why does he do miracles? To teach. Why does he heal the dead, heal the sick? To teach. Why does he raise the dead? To teach. Why does he cast out demons? To teach about the kingdom that has come. Teaching is his primary ministry, but also doing miracles is his secondary ministry and necessary ministry to verify his primary ministry. Okay, so so Jesus goes around teaching, but he's not teaching, he's not going around by himself. Who's following him? His what? His disciples. And guess what? If you're going to train people, you train them by life on life. You have them go with you, right? You don't disciple people just by meeting and reading the Bible with them once a week and then going away. You train people by living life with them, by sharing life with them. And these 12 were following Jesus as he's teaching. And then guess what he does in verse 7? This is crazy. What does he do in verse 7? He promotes them. Graduation day. What do they get to do in verse 7? He summoned the 12 and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He instructed them to take nothing with them. Eventually, he's going to tell them to go preach. This is amazing. Jesus is sending out his disciples to teach and preach. Yet, when Jesus is about to die on the cross, they're going to all run away from Jesus. They're not even fully, they don't even fully grasp who Jesus is yet. 
And yet Jesus is doing what? He's sending them out to do what? To teach. We have a backwards way of thinking sometimes in Christian circles where you have to have these certain qualifications before you teach. Well, maybe from a pulpit. There are pastoral qualifications. 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1. There are qualifications for the pastor, elder, overseer, all the same office. But other than that, if you're a Christian, are you supposed to teach? Yes. What is the Great Commission? Go therefore and make disciples, uh, baptizing them in the name of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then what? Teaching them. When should you start teaching and discipling people? As soon as you become a Christian. Follow Christians, learn from them, and go teach. They weren't ready by our standards. Even by the rabbinic standards of those days, they weren't ready. No rabbi sent out his disciples to go teach, but Jesus does. And notice here, he sends them out how? In what? In pairs. Like Mormons. Like police officers. In pairs. Why in pairs? Ecclesiastes 4, 9 and 10 says this. Two are better than one because they have good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up. But pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Pity the solo Christian. Pity the solo evangelist. Pity the solo missionary. Pity the the one-man army, the the Christian Rambos. Right? The one-man army who's going to take on the whole nation by himself or by herself. They went out in pairs. Pairs provided company, provided common counsel. It provided complimentary gifts. And it benefited hearers because they had two people going at them. It also encouraged and emboldened the messengers to speak the truth without compromise. You know why I think many Christians fail in evangelism today? Here's one of the reasons many Christians fail in evangelism today. Because they try to do it by themselves. I think that's a big reason. They don't go out in pairs. They invite their non-Christian friend over to their house for dinner. And they don't invite a friend from their, from their church to, to help gospelize them. And when you do that, when you go by yourself, you know what you have the temptation to do? Talk yourself out of it, right? You're able to give yourself an excuse. You can talk yourself back from the ledge. You're about to jump and evangelize, and you're like, ah, maybe next time. This doesn't seem like the wisest time to evangelize by my calculations as I look at the situation. This is not a good time to evangelize, right? You're sitting there with another person, though, and you both prayed for evangelism, and you're sitting there, you're like, are you going to say something? Am I going to say something? You know, someone's got to say something. And you can't talk two people out of it because you guys are both there, right? And so you're emboldened and empowered when you engage non-Christians with fellow Christians. We try to do it by ourselves. We get prayer requests from people and then we go at it alone. God designed us for community and partnership in the gospel. I know many Christians, I know of many Christians who seek to go into worldly and dark company of people with good intentions. But you know what happens to these Christians? They end up silent, and sometimes instead of influencing their friends, you know what happens? They get influenced. Instead of them helping people come to Christ, they help these Christians come away from Christ. Because they go at it alone. They forget that they have a church. They forget they're partnered with a covenant family. A church who's supposed to walk side by side with them as they make Christ known to the lost. I can attest to the ineffectiveness of going alone. When I used to evangelize at the park at Chateau in Los Angeles, I can remember many times talking myself out of a conversation. And then one time I went with one of my friends to play basketball at the park. Now, my friend is a professional paintball player. He's not a basketball player. So he's like, let's go evangelize at the park. So he says, okay, I'm coming. He drives out to my apartment in L.A. He has a headband on, wristband on. I'm like, what are you doing? He says, I'm, I'm looking like a basketball player. I'm like, stop that. Take that off. You know, you're, you look ridiculous. And everyone's going to know once you shoot the basketball that you don't know how to play. So don't wear the headbands and the wristband. Take it off. You know, So he takes it off. We go to the park. He doesn't know what he's doing on the basketball court. But we play. And as we play, he just sits there and hangs out with us. And I feel bold and I actually get to have a gospel conversation. And there have been several times before that I went to the park by myself and I talked myself out of it. But just that he was there, he was just sitting there, not even in the conversation. But just the fact that I had a brother who loves Jesus and is praying that we have an opportunity to share the gospel, and he's there while I'm talking to somebody else, opened my mouth and emboldened me to share the gospel. I previously wouldn't have done that if he wasn't there. And that's why we have a church family, to team up and work together. 
Okay, so what else happens in this? So they're supposed to go out, and what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to have, in verse 7, authority over unclean spirits. In verse 8, he instructs them to take nothing with them. This is interesting in verse 8. Take nothing with them, except what? A walking stick? No bread, no food, no money, no traveling bag? Sandals? Yeah, you don't have to go barefoot, at least. Thank you, Jesus, for not letting us have to go barefoot, stepping on rocks and stuff. And don't put on an extra shirt, okay, so we can go clothed. Good. You know, um, so clothing, just a shirt on your back, shoes, and a walking stick. No money, no food, just go. Wow. Do you have to go by faith now? You have to go by faith, right? You're going to have to depend on people to provide for you. You're almost going to have to be a beggar in some ways, right? Look at verse 10. So what do you do then? Verse 10. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. If any place does not welcome you, people refuse to listen to you. When you leave there, shake off the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So what are they supposed to do? Go and depend on the hospitality of other people. You're supposed to go there and say, I come in the name of who? Jesus. I'm coming in the name of Jesus. And have have people in those towns heard of Jesus? Yes, because what did verse 6 say? What was Jesus doing in a circuit? He was going around doing what? Teaching. So Jesus is now popular enough that if they go around saying, I come in the name of Jesus, at least they know who they are. Somewhat, right? You get two guys, bike helmets, knock on your door. They got little placards here, elder, whatever, right? And they, they have a, a blue book in their hand, King James Version. They have another blue book in their hand, a book of Mormon. Do you know who they are? I mean, you might not know them personally, but do you have an idea who they are? Yes, why? Their name is broad enough that you're not thinking they're coming there to steal something from you, Right? You've heard enough about Mormons. They have enough of a reputation that they're safe enough to have a conversation with. And that's what Jesus' disciples were here. He went around teaching. People know about his miracles. And now they're going around town to town saying, I'm coming. I'm one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. We have a message for you. Oh, the guy who's been doing miracles and raising people from the dead, the really popular teacher, the one who was just in town last week. Yeah, yeah, that guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Come in our house. Come on. We got food for you. We got drinks. Stay here. Teach us what you have to say. Others say, I don't know who that guy is, or yeah, he does miracles, but he didn't do anything for me, or I don't care who he is, until he comes here personally, I'm not going to have him here. And so people reject, people receive. But here's the point, when you go with nothing but your shirt, your shoes, and a walking stick, you have to trust in the hospitality of other people. Not only that, you have to trust ultimately in who? In God, right? You have to trust in God to provide for your needs. And not only that, you felt the urgency of of your mission. If you went with a picnic basket, where you went, you would say, you would say to your partner, you know what, it's kind of hot. Let's go under shade. Let's just let's just rest for a little bit and eat. And then let's, you know what, we're so full. Let's take a nap, right? And then eventually you come back to Jesus and like, what'd you do? Oh, um, well, we we ate under a tree and then we took a nap and now we're back here. Yeah, that, that that's not going to go well for evangelism. You're not really engaging in the mission. You've been distracted by other things. But when you have no food. You're going to have to find people to eat with now, right? You have no food. You have no shelter. You're forced to engage people. And that shows the urgency of the mission. And don't we have an urgent mission today? Are people going to die? Are your neighbors going to die? Yes. Are they going to go to heaven or hell? I mean, are they going to go to one of the two? Yes or no? Yes. There's an urgency here. People are dying. Everyone in this church is going to die, right? We're all, we're all one week closer to death than we were last week. We're all going to die. There's an urgency here of sharing the gospel because because people are going to die and they're going to face judgment. And so we need to see here. Now, I'm not, am I saying, okay, PJ, so you're saying that we shouldn't take any clothes with us. We should just, you know, go evangelize door to door like that. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is this. You need to get rid of the distractions in your life that are, that are becoming excuses for, evan- for not evangelizing. Does that make sense? There's certain things in your life that have become excuses in your life to not evangelize your neighbors and your family and your friends. And you're not feeling the urgency. You're not hearing the clock ticking on people's lives and on the coming judgment. But the clock is ticking. And when you get rid of the distractions in your life, you remember that the clock is ticking and there's an urgency to speak up, to partner up and speak up and share the gospel. And so we sing songs like, Jesus, I my cross have taken. It's in the hymnal. It says, Go then, earthly fame and treasure. Come disaster, scorn and pain. In your service, pain is pleasure. With your favor, loss is gain. 
I have called thee Abba Father. I have stayed my heart on thee. Storms may howl and clouds may gather. All must work for good for me. I'm a, I'm a missionary. I'm a Christian. And I'm sharing the gospel. Now, when you share the gospel, you're going to have one of two um, responses, right? Either they will receive, they'll be receptive, or they'll be rejecting. So you're either reception or rejection. So what do you do if they receive you in verse 10? If they, whenever you enter a house, if they let you in the house, what should you do? Stay there, right? Linger with them. Converse with them. That doesn't mean only one gospel conversation. Have many gospel conversations. Talk about questions. Talk about objections. Talk about the Bible. Read with them. Pray with them. Pray for them. Now, that's one response is receptivity. What's the other response? Rejection. Verse 11. If a place doesn't welcome you, what should you do with the dust on your feet? Shake it off. Now, what does that mean? Shake the dust off your feet. That's like washing your hands, saying judgment is on who? On you. Now, when did people shake off the dust of their feet in Jesus' time? Here's when. When you were a Jew and you traveled to another country and you're on the border, you're about to enter back into the promised land, you know what you would do? Right before you enter the promised land, you shake all the dust off of your clothes, you shake the dust off of your shoes because you were in Gentile, heathen, pagan, condemned, lost territory. And now you're entering into the promised land. Don't bring any of that dust from that heathen land into this promised land. That's, those people are heathen and pagan and lost and judged. Don't bring that into this land. So now, imagine Jews who did that when they traveled abroad. Now when, you're, when they come to your house and, they, and you don't let them in, and then you, you just see these, you see these disciples start shaking their feet right there in front of you. You're like, what are you doing? You didn't just enter from a Gentile land. Oh yeah, this place is heathen. I mean, if you're not coming to Jesus... If you're not receiving Jesus, you're like a pagan. You're like a heathen. You're under the judgment of God, just like a non-Jew, a Gentile. And so it was, a, it was a way of communicating clearly judgment. So what should you do when you evangelize? What should they do? Either stay with them and, and keep talking if they receive you. And if they reject you, what should you do? Shake the what? Dust off your feet. In other words, I'm not saying you should do that today. People will just look at you funny, right? You, say, you know, imagine a Mormon just start shaking their shoes in front of you. You're just like, what is that? That doesn't make sense today. But you should clearly communicate to people you're sharing the gospel with, especially when they reject Jesus and they reject you. Remind them that there are consequences for their rejection and that they are accountable to God. So we need to redefine success in evangelism. What is successful evangelism? Here's the wrong answer. Successful evangelism, successful gospelizing, is when you tell the gospel to someone and they repent and believe in Jesus. Now, that could be successful. But what if they reject Jesus? Is that successful? Yes. For you as the evangelist. So let me define for you successful evangelism and successful, successful gospelizing, gospel ministry. Success is initiating a conversation about Jesus and feeling out rejection or reception to further the conversation or to stop the conversation. If you don't initiate a conversation, you fail. If you do initiate a conversation and you discern rejection or reception, you what? Succeed. So in other words, brothers and sisters, don't feel like a failure when people reject you. Don't feel like a failure when you tell God's word to somebody and they, they get mad at you. You are not a failure. You are faithful. If you're doing it lovingly, now if you're being a jerk about it and you're being mean, then you are failing. But if you're speaking the truth in love and they reject it, then they reject it. And you just have to be faithful in loving them. So there's proclamation. Look at verse 12. We'll close with verse 12 and 13. Last two verses. Verses 12 and 13. So they went out and preached that people should repent. And they were driving out many demons, anointing many sick people with olive oil and healing them. So what's their gospel ministry? Two things. Verse 12, it's proclamation. And verse 13, it's demonstration. They demonstrate the gospel by helping people who are oppressed by demons. That's like helping people um, with demonic, with sins in life, help them, help them break out a sin pattern in their lives. Remember we talked about that? Whether it's addictions, it could be debt and bad money spending habits or things like that. It could just be a lot of different things. You're helping people grow as a person to be free from the oppression that, that demons would like to oppress people with. And then secondly, you're healing people. You're helping people get well. You're praying for their healing. You're trying to help them with health. Christians have always started schools and hospitals everywhere they went in the mission field. So that's demonstration ministry. But it's not only demonstration ministry, it's also proclamation ministry in verse 12. And what are you preaching in verse 12? That people should what? Should what? Repent. And that's where it's not popular. That's the hard part, brothers and sisters. You tell people to repent from their sins, 
which is not just saying feel sorry for your sins. It's to change your whole orientation of life, to change your outlook, to change your goals, to change your entire agenda of your life. That's what repentance is. It used to be your own personal self-centered agenda, and now it's the agenda of Jesus. That's what repentance is. So you call people to turn from their sins and trust in Jesus, and that offends people. And there's a cost to it. People will reject you, and we're going to learn about that next week with John the Baptist. In the following verses, John the Baptist, he paid the cost for being rejected, and we will have to pay that cost too, and we need to be ready as Christians. But let me close with one more word to non-Christians. Dear non-Christian friend, again, understand that God made you. He created you in his image to enjoy him. But you have rejected Jesus. All of us are sinners. We've all rejected Jesus. And God sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins and rise from the dead. So that if you would repent from your sins, turn from your sins, and trust in Jesus Christ, you would be saved. Please come to Christ. If you're a Christian, take risks in gospel ministry and do it with other people. Church family, let's pray for each other. Let's offer to to help each other engage non-Christians. What are your plans for 4th of July? Here's a good... Um, I'm assuming with Tony, it's okay if we invite non-Christians to our 4th of July barbecue, right? It's okay to invite non-Christians there to the 4th of July barbecue. Just make sure you tell the kitchen committee so that we have a good number. And then, um, not only that, but what are you doing for 4th of July in the evening? Are you going to engage non-Christians? Are you going to have other Christians with you so that you could partner together and have them over for dinner and share the gospel with them together? It doesn't have to be the 4th of July. It could be something else. But I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, take events in your life and in our country to share life and share Jesus with Christians and with non-Christians. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you call us to risky gospel ministry. We pray for forgiveness. Please forgive us for making excuses for not gospelizing our friends and family and neighbors. Please forgive us for fearing others more than fearing you. We ask, God, that you would change our hearts. Make us bold. Encourage us. Strengthen us. Use us, Father. Make us a blessing. Make us a channel of blessing. Because people do need you. And we have a message to give them. Help us to receive you and follow you in faith. Trusting you no matter what happens. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.